What does it mean to be reformed? Number five, <clears throat> the importance and necessity of the regular principle. And uh, we're going to continue. I, I got a little dizzy there. I've, I've got COVID. We all have COVID. Uh, but we're going to continue and we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 12 and uh, verse 32. But I'm going to read it in the context. And I've labeled this covenant stipulations designed to secure purity of worship. Covenant stipulations designed to secure purity of worship. These are the statutes and judgments which you are to carefully, which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess, serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. <coughs> and you shall destroy their altars, break their pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for your, his dwelling place. And there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heath offerings of the land, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all that you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord God has blessed you. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes, for as yet you have not yet come to the rest and the inheritance of the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, then there will then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And then we jump down to verse twenty seven. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, your meat and your blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifice shall be poured out in the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall eat the meat. Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever. When you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land. Take heed that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. And here's our text. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination of the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods, for they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatsoever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Deuteronomy 12.1 begins a new section with further instructions on covenantal obedience in the promised land. Okay, and this is regarded by I have several commentators on Deuteronomy, and they all regard this as the beginning of a new section of the book. The focus on 12.1 to 16.17 is on the worship of Yahweh. That the first block of material in the second section of the book is focused on proper worship is deliberate. For unless Israel is properly related to Yahweh, her covenant sovereign, 
she could not fulfill her covenant obligations. Proper worship must be maintained to avoid ethical and spiritual syncretism with the heathen, which is spiritual adultery. And there are a number of teachings here that are noteworthy that are necessary to promote covenantal faithfulness in worship. So this, act, this, this emphasis on worship for keeping the covenant and living in a covenant relationship with Yahweh is not an accident. First, the section begins with a reminder that Israel is to carefully obey God's law and the land every day for the rest of their lives. Verse 1 both introduces the new section and also points to how the following instructions serve to fulfill this purpose. <coughs> Israel's fundamental allegiance to Yahweh must be expressed by fulfilling covenant obligations in the sphere of worship. These laws are intimately related to the first table of the law, especially the first two commandments. Okay, so this, this, this modern idea, this tendency of neglecting first table laws and being much more strict about second table laws contradicts the nature of covenant law itself. And then second, following a crucial biblical principle of sanctification, there is a command to annihilate every vestige of pagan religion and worship from the land. All the pagan sacred places of worship, shrines, statues, idols, sacred pillars, temples, and even the names are to be obliterated. The expression, surely destroy, or older translations, utterly destroy, is emphatic in Hebrew. The sense is exceptionally strong and could be translated, destroying you will destroy. Make sure it gets done. It's very emphatic in Hebrew. They were to be burned and ground up in such a manner that they could never be used again. Anything that held a religious significance among the heathen had to be removed and destroyed. The systematic and total destruction of every monument and symbol of idolatry was not only a symbolic act of rejection of all false gods and everything associated with them, but also was a removal of possible future stumbling blocks. You get rid of it, and you get rid of it in such a way you can't go back to it. The assumption of these commands is that there is nothing among pagan or humanistic religious rites or practices that pleases God or is acceptable to Him. Nothing. God wants none of it. He wants compromise with none of it. He hates every part of it with a holy hatred and demands that we place it on the ash heap of history. Obviously, the common idea that God accepts man's religious fantasies as long as they are sincere is a serious error. It's a kind of Christian existentialism. which says what you do is really not important It's if you're sincere about it. But if you're wrong, sincerity means nothing. God doesn't, God is not impressed. The command is accompanied with a warning against syncretism in verse 4. 
You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. The Jews were not to adopt or adapt anything from heathen worship practices into the worship of Yahweh. Not one thing was to be adopted. Not one thing was to be borrowed. Even the remotest of details in worship must be prescribed by God, and believers are not to look at heathen practices for ideas. Period. The idea that is common today is that the command to worship God is very general, and that we should expect different kinds of worship among different cultures. Each culture has its customs, and practices, and since worship, according to this anti-regulatist view, is very general, well, yeah, we're going to have a different kind of worship in Africa than we're going to have in Europe. According to this view, the worship of God does not transcend culture, but is captive to culture. To put it crassly, God has his input and man has his input, so worship is an extension of humanism. It's got to be sincere, they say. Can't do anything obviously unbiblical, but yet it is captive to human culture. The basic idea is that church leaders have an obligation to make worship relevant to the non-churched, especially young people. And this humanistic view explains the proliferation of rock bands, drama groups, music soloists, the use of applause during the service, pop psychology, comedian pastors, and so on. Now, the Reformed, people who are Reformed, like your R.C. Sproul, James Montgomery Boyce, uh, who are very sophisticated, uh, they're not going to have a rock band in their church. R.C. Sproul would have a, uh, a classical quartet and a trumpet soloist. I know I've seen Sproul many times. So their view is that, yeah, it, we, we have human culture, mixed with what God desires, but let's have high human culture. Let's have classical music. But in God's eyes, that is just as non-commanded as a hillbilly uh, jam fest or a rock and roll band. Although the modern church's syncretism with Hollywood, Las Vegas, and Broadway is not as obviously offensive and wicked as the Jews' adaptations of Baalism, it nevertheless is still sinful and highly corrupting. <coughs> Such warnings against syncretism are common in the law because of man's sinful depravity and proneness to human autonomy, which loves carnal, worldly, sensuous worship. If the people aren't strict and diligent, they will be seduced by the many temptations which surround them. The Roman Catholic Church is the most obvious example of what happens when this warning is completely ignored. Papal worship is full of paganism and superstition. Instead of bowing to Greek and Roman gods, they have simply substituted Mary and the saints. Pagan festivals and customs have been kept, but covered with a false veneer of Christian piety. I was raised in, in a very strict, old-fashioned Roman Catholic Church. Now, above the so-called altar in the back was a large crucifix 
um, which of course is blasphemous because Christ is not on a cross anymore. He's resurrected. But on the right-hand side of the church, there was a very large statue of the Virgin Mary. And then on the left side of the church, there was a very large statue, statue of Joseph. So you had Mary and Joseph, and then Jesus is on the crucifix. And during the different holy days, these statues, and these statues uh, were painted to look very real. They actually weren't like a white statue. They were painted with flesh tones and hair and fingernails and, and the whole nine yards. They were completely painted to look totally real. And then what they would do is on the different holy days, they would dress them up in different outfits. So this time of year, we're going to dress Mary and Joseph in white. And we're going to put some nice flowers there. This time of year, we're going to dress them in dark violet. Yes, they did that. Idolatry in the church. Idolatry. And of course, people would kiss these statues and bow before them. Pagan festivals and customs have been kept but covered in the false veneer of Christian piety. This theme will be returned to again in verse 30. Take heed to yourselves that you are not ensnared to follow them, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. The word snared or ensnared, nakash, refers to a trap made of rope used to catch small animals. The basic idea is that humanistic worship is a form of bondage or slavery. When men go outside the strict parameters of God's word in the area of worship, they immediately go off course into a deep ditch of sinful human autonomy. Now, People don't look at it that way. They look at it as a blessed freedom. Look how fun this is. This is great. We're getting all the young people in our church. We've got the best puppet show in town. We've got the best rock group around. This bass player is incredible. Sounds like Jack, Bruce, and Cream. We've got a great band. That's not, that's not how God looks at it. And then third, there's a lengthy section dealing with proper worship with a focus on the place which the Lord your God chooses, verse 14. The Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace brought a change from the decentralized worship of the period of the patriarchs to a central sanctuary in the land where the ceremonial cultists would take place. First Shiloh, then Jerusalem. This was designed for a people prior to the coming of Christ to teach them that there was only one one true God and there is only one way of approach to God and communion with him. That is, in the Lamb and in by the Lamb of God to come, the Messiah, the divine human mediator, Jesus Christ. <coughs> the fact that the Old Testament system of worship contains ceremonial aspects is acknowledged by all scholars. But the application of Sola Scriptura to worship is not ceremonial and continues into the New Covenant era. And this is certainly the position of Jesus Christ and Paul. Matthew 15, 1-9, Mark 7, 6-17, uh, John 4, 23-24, then of course Matthew 28, 20, Paul, Colossians 2, 8, 21-23, and Romans 14, 23. When, when Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman, and they didn't worship on the proper place. They, they worshiped on Gerizim instead of in Jerusalem. And Jesus told them they were wrong with the Jews was the proper ordinances. 
They should be worshiping Jerusalem. But he said a time is coming when it doesn't matter where you worship. What matters is that it has to be done in spirit and in truth. The, the place, the singular place, will be set out of gear by the coming of Christ. But the regular principle continues. Worship must be done according to the spirit of truth, according to the Holy Spirit, not man's imagination. And then fourth, this section which carefully delineates the commanded worship in the promised land and which sternly warns the people against syncretism twice, verse 4 and then 30, uh, 31 and following, ends with the classic solo scriptura imperative, verse 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. So here Moses under divine inspiration, takes the broad sola scriptura principle of Deuteronomy 4.2 and he applies it directly to the sphere of worship. And there are three elements to this teaching. This is super simple stuff, but nobody obeys it anymore, so let's be very careful and look at it carefully. Number one, God requires a careful, attentive, exacting, strict implementation of the worship he has authorized or prescribed in his infallible word. Now the concept of doing something carefully in scripture carries with the idea of number one. Listen. Pay really careful, close attention to what God requires. Let's get the imperatives right. Let's get the commands right. Let's get the requirements correct. This involves listening carefully with intelligence and understanding. And this step assumes a careful historical grammatical exegesis of Scripture, not a reading of one's own presuppositions into the text or an attempt to circumvent the text to justify current declension. Pay close attention. Number two putting what God has said into habitual practice. You have to hear what God says. And of course, the obvious implication is you're hearing with faith. It's mingled with faith. If you hear with your ears and you don't hear with faith, it's not going to do you any good. You must trust in his word and then obey what he requires. The test of faith in what Yahweh has required is a strict, consistent obedience. The regular principle of worship is not obeyed in our day because people have lost faith in sola scriptura and the sufficiency and perfection of scripture. They don't believe the Bible is sufficient. They don't have faith in what God has told us to do. They also they have most of their faith is directed to the church to what men say, to what men in declension, their customs, their traditions, their additions, and they're loved, and people put their faith in what man has said. Sad to say. People who reject the regular principle couch their arguments with all sorts of clever, pious-sounding equivocations. But their bottom line is really unbelief unbelief. Did you listen with the ear of faith? 
Did the command, is it accompanied with true faith? Do you seek to simply implement what God has commanded? That's what true faith does. It doesn't look for excuses. It doesn't look for equivocations. It doesn't look for uh, arguments why our human traditions are great and we can do those instead of what God says, which, sad to say, is the way most people think today. We are to carefully obey everything as given by God. Now, this seems very obvious and simple, yet few Protestants attempt to follow it. The original reformers, such as Calvin, Knox, and the Westminster Divines, were very, very careful to follow what Scripture taught and authorized for each specific element of worship. In the Bible, the people of God used divinely inspired songs in public worship without the temple instruments, incense, and priestly garments. Following every account of the Holy Supper in Scripture, Matthew 26, 27, Mark 14, 23, Luke 22.17, 1 Corinthians 11.25, they used a single, single cup of wine per table, and congregants sat facing each other around tables. We have four examples in Scripture of the Lord's Supper. And all four accounts say cup, singular, cup, singular, cup of wine, singular, cup, singular, cup, singular. And that's not seen by people today as being significant. Now, it was by Calvin and Knox and the early reformers, and it was by the Westminster Directory for Public Worship. But not anymore. The very careful and strict adherence to what is taught and authorized by Scripture of our spiritual forefathers is one of the greatest achievements of the Protestant Reformation. Yet today, this exceptional carefulness is held in contempt, as if the command does not really mean what it says it means. How dare you require that we just do what God tells us to do? How dare you? Look at these beautiful traditions we have. Some of these traditions go back hundreds of years. They're wonderful. The children love it. It's bringing more people into our church. But God hates it, because God never commanded it. Now, anti-regulatives within the Reform cap attempt to circumvent Deuteronomy 12.32 in three ways. One way is to note the identical command in Deuteronomy 4.2 that applies to all of life, which contains thousands of circumstances, and then based on that false use of circumstances, they erroneously conclude that the command does not really mean what it says. It's only a very general command. It is only to be understood generally, and human additions are necessary after all. That's a very common view today. We've already refuted this foolish view above. All of life has thousands and upon thousands of circumstances. But this does not mean we get to invent our own ethical principles, do we? Do we? Another view and this is very common, this also you can find with people like Steve Slissel and Doug Wilson, is that the regular principle only applied to the temple cultus because the temple symbolized the person and work of Christ. Now, besides the fact that there's no evidence 
no evidence is provided for this position. It's simply presupposed. It's assumed. There's no evidence for it. Both the Old and New Testaments have many examples of this being principle, the regular principle, being applied to non-temple situations. It applied to family worship, Genesis 4, 3 to 7. It applied to private home hand washings in Matthew 15, 1 to 9. And it applied to churchmen in the New Covenant era, who Paul had to rebuke, for they were adding their own ideas to Christian worship or piety in Colossians 2, 23. So Paul certainly believed it applied to the New Testament church. Jesus certainly believed it applied to the New Testament church. And uh, that makes perfect sense because we're still sinners and we need to be restrained and not allowed to do whatever we want in worship. In addition, the regular principle is founded on the principle of the perfection and sufficiency of Scripture. So one cannot really eliminate the regular principle without also destroying sola scriptura. The one assumes the other. People don't understand. When you look at people's arguments, you want to, you want to say, what is the logical conclusion to this argument? And then it, you drive that argument to absurdity. And then, of course, you point out they're inconsistent. Consequently, those who employ this arbitrary theory that it applied only to the temple have proved too much and have justified the Roman Catholic position. They're siding with Rome over the Reformation and don't realize it. Or some do realize it and they don't care. I think James Jordan knows that he's pointing the church in the direction of Rome. And I think Peter Lightheart too. I don't think Doug Wilson knows better. Further, the worship at the temple consisted of many shadow ordinances. <coughs> you had the utensils, and you had the incense, and you had the, <coughs> the Levites playing their special instruments. But it also had many elements that were not ceremonial at all, such as prayers and singing-inspired praise. Consequently, the attempt to restrict the regular principle to the Mosaic administration simply does not work. Were there ceremonial shadow ordinances that have been set out of gear? Absolutely. Read Galatians, read the book of Hebrews, read parts of Ephesians. It's, the Bible's crystal clear about this. But there was a lot of non-ceremonial worship conducted in the Old Testament, and that continues. That continues. In fact, the New Testament churches are virtually identical to the Jewish synagogues. It also would be rather strange for God to be concerned with the strict regulation of positive typical typological laws, but allow human autonomy with, that, with regard to moral natural and moral positive laws. Keep in mind that the context of Deuteronomy 4.2 is on the moral law, not ceremonial regulations. So that's just a dumb argument. God is concerned with his moral natural law and his moral positive law. That is laws that are universal. He doesn't want us adding to those. And he doesn't want us detracting from those. A third way to attempt to circumvent this passage is to offer a historical argument. 
I, I also get this from uh, Steve Schlissel. He's really done us a service because he wrote down what most a lot of reform people are thinking. He wrote down all the anti-regulativist arguments, and he's a very bright guy. I've met him. He's a great speaker. Um, but he uh, he wrote all this stuff down so we can see how stupid these arguments are. They're stupid. They're terrible. Some anti-regulativists argue that the original Calvinistic reformers overreacted against the abuses of Rome. They were so distressed with the many gross corruptions of the papal church that they went too far in the other direction. They applied a flamethrower when they should have been more like Martin Luther and just simply used a scalpel. And there are serious problems with this argument. A. The reformers' appeal to the regular principle was thoroughly exegetical and not arbitrary. Their view of Sola Scriptura drove their treatment of Romanism's additions, not simply a personal dislike of their practices. When they reformed worship, they did what they believed Scripture forced them to do. It had nothing to do with simply personal opinion. And to think that they were like that is just really denigrating the reformers. B. If what the reformers did was an overreaction, and that's the words that Schlissel uses in his followers, then the anti-regulativists should point out to us what the reformers went to, where the reformers went too far, and what Roman Catholic practices they would like to reintroduce. <laughs> These guys went too far. And there's some Roman Catholic practices you want to reintroduce into the Reformed churches. Well, tell us what they are. Let us analyze them biblically. And of course, they never do because they know that they would be exposed. For what they're doing is, is they're simply trying to justify human autonomy and worship. That's what they're doing. Human autonomy and worship. I want to do what I want to do. I want my sacred traditions. I want my best-loved human traditions that have been added to the worship of God. That's all they're doing. And then B. Excuse me, C. The Reformers, Zwingli, Calvin, Knox, Bucer, others, and the Second Reformation Presbyterians and Puritans were careful exacting scholars and logicians. Read John Owen. On worship. Read him. Very careful. Read George Gillespie on worship. Exceptionally diligent and very careful in what he says. Read Calvin's Institutes. These guys were extremely exacting, careful, good scholars and logicians. The idea that they allowed themselves for over two generations to twist the truth based on personal prejudices is absurd on the face of it and is easily refuted by their writings on this topic. Assuming that men like John Calvin, John Knox, Rutherford, Owen, Gillespie, were incompetent, arbitrary, and hypocritical on worship is inexcusable. It is a foolish, unsupportable fantasy. You're talking about just these three, Gillespie, Rutherford, and John Owen. You're talking about three of the greatest Christian scholars in all of history, especially in the sphere of worship. 
incredibly brilliant stuff, all proved very carefully from Scripture. Number two. Nothing man-made is to be added to the worship of God. You shall not add to it. This command of the one following, um, following it is designed to support the first imperative regarding the careful keeping of everything that God has commanded. Now I want you to carefully keep everything I've commanded here. This is covenantal obedience. Now let me tell you how to do that. First, don't add anything to it. Don't add any of your human ideas. Don't add anything to it at all. Stick strictly to what I've commanded. Because of our sinful nature, God must treat us like little children. Just stick to what I tell you. Do not embellish or come up with your own ideas. Stick to what I tell you. Don't alter it at all. The assumption behind this imperative is that man-made ordinances are unacceptable and automatically corrupting. And you know, we do this with our own little children when we're telling them to do something out in the yard and we're worried they might hurt themselves or do something stupid. We'll say, this is what I want you to do, Bob. And I want you to do exactly as I tell you. Just do this. Don't come up with any ideas of your own do this. And you do that for their safety. Well, God's doing the same thing with his people here. Look, here's what I told you to do. Don't add to it. Don't detract from it. Just stick right to what I tell you. Only the infinitely holy God can determine what is holy and acceptable to him. Man cannot make anything holy, for man is a finite sinner and has no such authority. Biblical history and church history testify to the truth and wisdom of this command. Man-made additions have not been nothing but a disaster for Israel and the post-apostolic church. Everything in the worship of God must be put to the simple test. Did it come from God, or did it originate with man? Look at Israel. Remember the bronze serpent? Well, they started to worship it. This love of superstition, this love of idolatry. God's protecting us from ourselves. We cannot be trusted, especially in the sphere of worship. And then number three. Nothing is to be detracted from the worship of God instituted in his word. This command is a logical corollary Corollary, sorry, I've got COVID, to the preceding. When man has their own ideas to worship, the result historically is that something that God has required is replaced. That's absolutely true. Man-made hymns have driven out inspired psalms. We have it made here. We use the 1650 Psalter. Uh, you're not going to find better songs ever. It's a very excellent translation. It's not like the RPCNA Psalter, their new one, which is a watered-down, uh, gross paraphrase. And uh, there's nothing better than that. But if you have a Trinity hymnal, have fun finding a psalm in there that's not completely a paraphrase or that's been mixed with man-made garbage. Entertainment. 
has largely driven out deep exegetical preaching. Grape juice and plastic thimbles has driven out real wine in a real cup around tables. So the Lord's Supper today is a symbol of a symbol. It's a symbol of a symbol. And you say, well, that's, you're being ridiculous. Who cares if we use grape juice? Well, I didn't know we had the authority to ignore what Scripture says and do what we want based on legalism. What happened in the 19th century is churches got rid of wine and started using water. And the Mormons still do that today. This is legalism. God says use real wine, and we know they used real wine because the Lord's Supper was in the spring and the grape harvest is in the fall. Uh, so they didn't have fresh grape juice nine months after the harvest. It had to be wine. I know there's people that say, oh, they, they took raisins and they crushed them and mixed water with them. That would be gross, and they, they didn't do that. Legalism says we're wiser than God. And we're going to get rid of real wine in communion. We're going to switch to water. Well, then a guy named Welch has invented uh, pasteurized grape juice in the 1800s. And then they all, most of them switched from water to grape juice. And that, that was all you could get in the RPCNA for, for probably over 100 years. And it's totally disobedient. It's disobedient to what God commands. The marriage supper of the Lamb is not have grape juice, it has wine. They didn't serve grape juice at weddings, they served wine. Christmas is the great special holy day, has driven out the Christian Sabbath. Now, evangelicals don't believe in the Sabbath anymore because they're dispensational. They believe that the Sabbath is, they actually believe that the Sabbath, which is a, which is a creation ordinance, they believe it's been done away by the coming of Christ. There is no Sabbath now. This is the position of uh, even respected, uh, fairly good preachers like um, well, the fellow down in L.A. Uh, dang, I can't remember his name. But um, they sure defend their Christmas. They won't defend the Sabbath. They say it's been abrogated. But you better leave our Christmas alone. They'll defend Christmas tooth and nail. Something that didn't start until the fourth century, something that was a tactic of the Roman church to encourage pagans to join the church. They took a pagan holy day and they lied and they said it was Christ's birthday. And that is a lie. It's based on a lie. It's based on paganism and it's a monument to pagan idolatry. They defend that, but they won't defend the Sabbath. And business models and bureaucratic committees have driven out biblical Presbyterianism. Matthew 15.3 Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Men who add to the worship of God must ignore and disobey God to do so. They love their human invention so much they are willing to take what God has commanded away in order to make room for their little man-made idols. That's the sad truth. And then we'll look at one more thing real quickly. The unacceptable offering, Genesis 4, 3 to 5. 
we have we have here the first post-fall narrative regarding worship. And it's very interesting what it tells us. Let me read it. Genesis 4, 3 to 5. In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Now the true approach to God in worship is contrasted here to the false humanistic approach. And this is in the first post-fall biblical narrative. Abel, the author of Hebrew, tells us, Hebrews 11.4, has true faith and thus approached God through a proper commanded blood sacrifice, the firstborn of a clean animal, which we know from other sections of Scripture symbolizes the blood of Christ and his perfect sacrifice, his atoning death. Well, we do not have uh, an inscripturated record of Yahweh's instructions regarding sacrifice to Adam and Eve. We can deduce that they were instructed when God himself killed animals to cover their shame. Genesis 2.21. God made a covering for them. That's what an atonement is. God covers our sin, our guilt, with the blood of Christ. The fact that Abel's offering was an expression of faith assumes faith in God's word, Obviously not faith in human autonomy. And generations later, we see that faithful Noah is still offering clean animals as burnt offerings in Genesis 8.20. Now the description of Abel's offering, the firstborn of his flock and the fatty portions that cover the animal's innards, sounds like a typical Old Testament burnt offering. The law says that these fatty portions belong to God. Exodus 29, 13, Leviticus 3, 3 to 5, 14 to 16, 4, 8 to 10, 26, 31, and 7, Leviticus 7, 23 to 25. In addition, the firstborn of the oxen and the sheep, both clean animals, by the way, belong to God, Exodus 22, 30. So Abel, following God's command, offered a clean perfect specimen without spot or blemish, the firstborn of the flock. The author of Hebrews extols Abel's faith and says, by faith he offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, verse 4, 11, 4. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, his worship, because he carefully approached God as God had commanded his faith obeyed what Yahweh had prescribed. And we know that by looking at other passages on sacrifice throughout the Old Testament. He offered a burnt offering. And he did it in accordance with the law that would come much later, but clearly the burnt offering was revealed to Adam and Eve in the garden, and we find it with Noah, and we find it throughout the Old Testament. He approached God through a sin offering, which involved the shedding of blood. After the fall, no one can come unto God and have fellowship with him without the blood of Christ. Abel's faith exhibited itself by laying hold of the perfect sacrifice to come in the midst of wrath and judgment. Therefore, in the very first post-fall narrative, God established that Christ is the only way to God the Father. See John fourteen six. 
And worship must be an act of faith. That is, it must be precisely follow what Yahweh had prom prescribed. Remember, we, we noted earlier, a few weeks back, that faith assumes faith in God's word. It assumes faith in Christ. It doesn't assume faith in man's autonomy. It has to be faith in God and his word. Otherwise, it's useless. That is, it must precisely follow what Yahweh has prescribed. Now, Cain, unlike his younger brother, offered God some of his agricultural produce, the fruits of the field, perhaps wheat or barley. Much later, the Mosaic Law would describe grain or cereal offerings in Leviticus chapter 2. But it is very unlikely that Cain had any such revelations on such things at this early date. In addition, and this is crucial, the cereal offerings in the law were only to be offered after burnt offerings. That's very important. <coughs> only after the one who approaches God in worship has been granted forgiveness through the burnt offering, that is faith in, the G in Jesus Christ to come, can the worshiper offer a cereal offering as an act of thankfulness and dedication? The grain offering was always presented after animal sacrifices. For vicarious atonement and justification always precedes sanctification and devotion to God. You can't go to God with a grain offering without first having the death of a clean animal. Atonement, blood atonement. By making his grain offering to Yahweh without the burnt offering, Cain was presenting himself and his efforts before God as acceptable without a blood sacrifice. So his violation of the regular principle was twofold. He did not have faith and salvation by Christ, and he sought to approach God through the labors of his own hands. Number one principle of Christian worship, through Christ. We pray through Christ. We bow the knee through Christ. We worship through Christ. Everything is through Christ. Why? Because in and of ourselves we're wicked, rotten, filthy sinners. We need the blood of Christ to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. We need the perfect imputed righteousness of Christ to reckon to our account before we can go into the throne room of God. That's very easy, very simple. Cain did not accept that. <coughs> In the very first narrative after the fall, the twin pillars of true religion... <coughs> oh, he did not have faith in salvation by Christ, and he sought to approach God through the labor of his own hands. He rejected the word of the Lord and did what was right in his own eyes. In the very first narrative after the fall, the twin pillars of true religion, biblical worship and salvation by grace through faith alone and Christ alone, are cast aside by Cain, the first humanistic merit monger. God warns us very carefully that a man-centered humanistic doctrine of salvation goes hand in hand with a man-centered system of worship. Salvation by works is a logical companion to what Paul calls will worship. Ephe 
lo threskia in Colossians 2.23 and uh, look at the old King James Version. Isn't that amazing? We're taught from the very first narrative how to worship God. Christ, of course, is exalted. And obedience to what God commands is exalted. And that's the lesson of the regular principle. Now, I know commentators, because, because a lot of these scholars today, they don't understand the regular principle. And they try to say things like, well, Cain was insincere. and Obviously, there was something wrong with him. He wasn't sincere. No, 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 no. He did not follow the due order. He didn't follow what God told them to do. You've got to have a burnt offering. Worship has to be through Christ. Worship has to be according to God's command. Abel had faith in that and did exactly what God said to do. Cain did not. And he thought God would be impressed by his beautiful crops when God is impressed by the blood of Christ, not our own sin-stained works. So we're going to stop there, but I, I just, you know, this, this is so clearly taught in Scripture, the regular principle. It's such an important doctrine. It is so clearly taught. There's absolutely no reason to abandon it and embrace uh, Romanism or sloppy evangelicalism, which is what the Reformed churches are doing today. There's no reason to do that, so let's not do it. Anyway, let us, we'll have to continue. Lord willing, I'll feel better next week. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much for this amazing section of Scripture. You've taught us what the truth is. Bring Reformation back to the Presbyterian and Reformed churches, Lord. That they would repent of their deep declension that began 200 years ago. So that we could have our children go to Presbyterian churches almost anywhere and have biblical worship. Which today, it's the exact opposite of that. Bring Reformation, Lord, back to your people. Forgive us for violating what you've so clearly taught. In Jesus' name, amen.